I want to make one thing perfectly clear. This show is not about lumberjacks. My name is Christopher Grunland, and every month I share a story. Sometimes the stories contain truths, but most of the time they're made up. Sometimes the stories are funny, other times they're serious. But you have my word about one thing. I will never, ever share a story about lumberjacks. This time it's something a little different. Seven pieces of microfiction, one of them a Christmas story. All right, let's get to work. Not about lumberjacks. Pierre was deep in cutting away at timber with the rest of the crew. He hummed to himself as he worked, appreciating the cadence of the melody over the ruckus of his labor. The sounds of his efforts reverberated through his head. Winter was settling in, and while it wouldn't stop the grind, things slowed when temperatures dropped and snow arrived. The forest shut down, becoming a place of silence, with one exception. Pierre and his company continued to trudge on as they always did. But even as things slowed, this time of the year was not without a certain rush. On the tranquil river, timber was driven and dragged, placed into meticulous piles to later become homes. It was a seemingly never-ending process in which constant work was necessary to keep everyone safe and warm. Pierre took pride in his toiling. While he and his crew changed the landscape of the forests in which they worked, those efforts spreading out across the area, sometimes for the better, and, some argued, sometimes for the worse, there was no denying that they were busy beavers. As he drove the tree he'd worked at felling all morning, two people in a canoe paddled around the bend up ahead. Pierre slapped his thick, flat tail against the water's surface, sending an alarm echoing across the water and into the woods. The crew all dove deep, finding refuge in their lodge. When the coast was clear, they swam back for the trees. Be a man. Benny puts another shell into the old 10-gauge goose gun, levels it at his son Stevie, and says, You're next! The family dog, Duke, lies dead at Stevie's feet. I thought I told you to wash that damn dog up. I did. Benny locks eyes with Stevie, reminding him to show respect. Stevie says, I did, sir. Then why is it covered in fucking fleas? Benny's been drinking. His pastime is drinking beer while sharpening knives, cleaning guns, and watching television. The leftovers of a case of Budweiser are scattered across the floor into crumpled little balls. A whetstone and gun cleaning kit are at his feet. He kicks a can at Stevie's head and shouts, When you gonna man up, boy? I don't know, sir. Stevie is 13 and will never be a man as long as Benny's around to remind him he'll never amount to anything. Benny tries beating manhood into his son whenever he can. Get that damn mud out of here. Stevie looks down at Duke. He wonders how someone could kill an animal. He wonders how someone can be so mean. 
Benny wonders how his son ended up so weak. He wonders if he'll ever be a man. What the hell you doing? Stevie pulls the buck knife from his pocket. His father gave it to him for Christmas the previous year. He taught him how to take care of it, how to sharpen it to a razor's edge. This is a man's knife, he told him. You take good care of this, and one day it'll take good care of you. It's time to test his father's advice. Benny laughs as Stevie opens the blade and locks it into position. What the hell you gonna do with that? Knife ain't no match for this. He rocks the goose gun in his hands and Stevie takes advantage of the moment. He leaps forward, charging in past the bad end of the gun before it goes off. Benny pulls the trigger and Birdshot flies across the living room, taking out the TV. And with one quick thrust of the knife, Stevie becomes a man. Fucking asshole. Once upon a time, there was a boy named Fucking Asshole. No, really, that was his name. Said so right on his birth certificate. Most kids in the nursery had names like John Jones, Steve Smith, and Jim Johnson, but the firstborn son of Brian and Brenda Asshole was named Fucking. As you can imagine, this led to many problems in young Fucking's life. In school, teachers refused to call his name on the roll sheet. After they'd call out Arnie Anderson and little Arn said, here, they froze up when they came to the following name. Most teachers thought it was a joke. By third grade, fucking was so used to teacher silence, he would say, fucking asshole, that's really my name, fucking asshole. The class would laugh and little fucking would be sent to the principal's office. So much for trying to help a teacher through an uneasy moment. Young fucking had no friends. There were a couple times he came close to having friendships, but once a potential friend's parents found out their kid was off to play with a kid named fucking asshole, that was it. Where are you off to, Johnny? I'm going over to fucking asshole's house to play, Mom. Jonathan Jones, how dare you use such language? Go to your room and get used to it. You're grounded forever, young man. And so it went for years until fucking became an adult, until that fateful day one June when fucking asshole met shitty cunts. Shitty cunts was a dream come true, intelligent, funny, and beautiful. But more than that, she knew what it felt like to be ostracized simply for the name given to her by her parents. It turned out fucking and shitty even had more in common than a lifetime of carrying strange names. And so they married, agreed to change their last names to Smith, and moved to the suburbs where they now struggle to keep up with the Joneses next door. The Intersection The day begins with two men honking at each other in the intersection both trying to hurry through before a school bus pulls up and they have to wait one full minute for a handful of kids to load in for a day of school. The man running the stop sign receives a honk from the guy with the right of way, and despite being in the wrong, he lays on his horn. The other man honks back and waves with his hands. Soon, middle fingers are exchanged. 
Mr. Right-of-Way steps out of his Toyota Camry, and Angry Man exits his massive pickup truck, pulls a pistol, and fires three shots. One hits Mr. Right-of-Way in the chest, another misses, and a third bullet strikes Bobby Riffler in the head as he waits for the bus on his ninth birthday. In a jailhouse interview on the news, Angry Man tells the reporter he's sorry about the kid, but not about Mr. Right-of-Way. The world is wound so tight right now, he says. I could beat any of us on the right day. Online, tightly wound people argue about gun control and mental health. In the days that follow, more comes to light about Angry Man. His wife has cancer, and he was three days shy of his last day at a job he had for over 15 years when the shooting occurred. Layoffs, a reward for a job well done. But none of that matters to Connie and Roger Riffler, both of whom will never resort to such measures, despite all they lost at the hands of a tightly wound man. Their lives fall silent while the rest of the world moves on, waiting for the next intersection moment to flare up, and then become just another memory. Vlad Stovepipe Prologue The children rolled the first snowball into a thing taller than the tallest kid on Oak Street. The second snowball was smaller than the first, but still larger than the bodies of most snowmen. The head required a couple kids in a stepladder to hoist it up top. A hat was added, as well as a scarf, sticks for arms, charcoal eyes, and a carrot for a nose. When the kids couldn't figure out what to use for a mouth, Stevie Gregson ran into his house and came back with the vampire teeth he used for his Halloween costume two and a half months before. It doesn't look right, Carrie Branson said. He should have a smile, not fangs. When she went back the next day to fix things, the snowman was gone. Vlad's stovepipe was doubly cursed when it came to the sun. Not only was he a snowman, but he was also a vampire. Within days of his creation, Jimmy Sullivan went missing. The adults all dispelled any notion that, as the children on the block claimed, Jimmy was drained of blood by a snowman and carried away to wherever creatures of the night dispose of their victims. Chad Hurley said he saw Vlad's stovepipe the next day looking like a lumbering cherry snow cone full of Jimmy's blood hiding from the sun in the shade of the Sullivan's garage. The adults said it was all in Chad's head, trauma caused by a friend gone missing, a kid the police said probably just ran away. But when Braden Smith never showed up to the bus stop two days later, the adults finally took things more serious. Of course, being adults, they attribute it to a serial stalker, someone justifying all the talk of stranger danger. The children of Oak Street were told to stay inside. The following week, Tarek L. Kurd told his friends he saw Vlad Stovepipe stalking the shade along the side of his house. He's kind of pink, Tarek said. I bet that means he's going to feed soon. We have to do something while he's weak. What can we do against something that kills, Bradley Griffin said. Tarek had a plan. 
When adults asked Tarek El Kurd what he wanted to be when he grew up, he replied without hesitation, a meteorologist. He argued with Chad Hurley's father when Mr. Hurley claimed global warming was a liberal myth. But Tarek had studied much more than the internet rantings of angry men, and his forecasts he put up on a webpage he started were already more reliable than the local news. He would be the bait, standing in the long shadow in his front yard caused by his house blocking the rising sun. In the nearby bushes, the Oak Street Vampire Slayers Guild waited with crosses and wooden stakes Tarek said were unnecessary. Vlad Stovepipe saw Tarek El Kurd standing in his front yard, his back turned to the monstrosity. Vlad made his move. It was too much for Bradley Griffin to bear. He had his own idea about how to defeat the brutal snowman. There must have been some magic in that old silk hat they found, he sang as he charged Vlad Stovepipe. For when they placed it on his head, he began to dance around. But pulling the hat from Vlad Stovepipe's head only seemed to anger him. As Bradley retreated, Tina Pruitt came in with a cross, hoping to distract Vlad long enough for her brother to drive a wooden stake into the snowman's heart. The problem with their plan? Snowmen don't have hearts. Bradley, Tina, and her brother backed away from Vlad's stovepipe, step by step, close to Tarek El Kurd, who stared at his watch. He looked up right as Vlad was about to sink his fangs into his neck, but not at the snowman. Instead, he looked at the beam of sunlight breaking over the top of the roof line right on time, hitting Vlad's stovepipe and locking him in the morning glow. The children rushed to get their parents, to prove to them they were right all along. As the residents of Oak Street watched Vlad's stovepipe melt before them, Mr. Hurley stepped toward Tarek. He put his hand on Tarek's shoulder. I'm sorry for not believing you, kiddo. Looks like you were right about that whole global warming thing this whole time. Hardcore People pay ten bucks to watch me bleed on Friday nights. They think what I do doesn't hurt. They say what I do is fake. But if wrestling's fake, why do I have over 13 feet of scar tissue covering my body? I measured them all once, so I know. If wrestling's fake, why do I sound like a bowl of Rice Krispies when I walk down the hallway in the morning after a match? If wrestling's fake, why do I hurt so goddamn? damn much. I eat painkillers for breakfast and buy butterfly bandages by the case. Most men I know don't wake up on the brink of tears from a hard night's work. But then, I don't wake up on Monday mornings on the brink of losing my sanity, knowing I have to go into a job I hate where a boss I don't even respect commands my destiny. I've known some shitty bookers along the way, but I'm my own boss, calling my own shots. And I've been all over Japan on other men's dimes, treated like a god by my sponsors who show me off like a battered trophy. There's nothing else I'd rather do. I hear chair hits in my sleep. Damn, I love that sound. I daydream about being put through tables, having pizza cutters raked across my forehead, and rolling around in barbed wire and thumbtacks. 
I love hearing the crowd gasp in horror when I'm busted wide open and wearing the crimson mask. That metallic taste in my mouth reminds me I'm good at what I do. What do you bleed for? What scars do you carry? Some of the best stories in life are written in scar tissue, and my body is a book. Another Christmas Eve It wasn't Christmas Eve until Dad and Grandpa got into a fistfight. Kid number one always dreaded the moment, while kid number two looked forward to it every year. The reason for the fights were random. Some unresolved thing from many years before, something one did recently that irked the other, or sometimes it came down to arguing about who caused the previous year's Christmas Eve battle. But every year when most homes teetered toward Silent Night, Dad and Grandpa came to blows. Even though Grandpa was tough and punched Nazis in the face during World War II, Dad could have easily reduced the family elder in a fight. It was only out of some strange respect that Dad ended up against the wall with Grandpa, slamming and punching each other so hard that Kid Number 1 and Kid Number 2 wondered if the Christmas tree would be toppled again like two years before. Dad would storm out of Grandpa's apartment right about the time most families told their children to go to bed so Santa Claus wouldn't skip the delivery of presents to their homes. Grandpa turned to kid number one and kid number two and said, Get your PJs on, you lousy grunions! After dressing for sleep, the kids returned to the living room, asking Grandpa to tell them a story. Once upon a time, there were two Dago kids, he began. Grandpa never forgave the kid's mother for divorcing dad and knew, when word got back to her that he still addressed the kids in such a manner, that it would make her boil. He continued with the story. And their grandpa loved them very much, even though he had a hard time showing it. After story time, grandpa showed the kids his war medals. Kid number one said, Can I have one for Christmas? Fuck no you can't, grandpa said. You want one? Go earn it yourself. When they were done looking at medals, Grandpa said, I'm going to sleep. You kids go put out beer and pretzels for Santa Claus and then get your butts to bed. The kids slept in their uncle's old bedroom. Their uncle had disappeared three Christmas Eves before. Some people said he finally grew tired of the family and left, but he was actually stabbed behind a tavern dumpster and later found dead, the family refusing to claim the body. After Grandma died the year before Uncle Billy's murder, the family found out just how much a burial cost, so they left it to the city of Chicago to put Uncle Billy to rest. In the morning, the kids tried waking Grandpa, but he snored like he was trapped in another dimension. Somehow, all the cans of beer the kids had left out for Santa Claus the night before had found their way into their grandfather's bedroom. Kid number two said, let's go open our presents, and kid number one agreed there was no better thing they could do at the time. Kid number one got a Mattel electronic soccer game, while kid number two got a pile of books. As they sat beneath the Christmas tree, reading and playing with their gifts, dad came home smelling like gin and perfume. He saw them before the tree and scooped them up in his arms in a huge hug. I'm sorry, he said. 
You two know I love you more than anything, right? The kids shook their heads. How about I make you some pancakes? As the apartment filled with the smell of breakfast cooking, Grandpa staggered out, wearing only his underwear. I'm sorry, Dad, Dad said to Grandpa. Grandpa crossed the kitchen and clapped Dad on his shoulder. I'm sorry too, Butch. Dad's name was Bertle, but Grandpa called everyone he knew Butch, even women. I made Mom's pancakes, Dad said to his father. They aren't as good as hers, but as silly as it sounds, I feel like she's here with us. Grandpa looked around the apartment, at the happy kids enjoying their gifts, at his son with a black eye bringing him a cup of coffee. You're damn right she is, son. And that's the way it was again until the next year, when Dad and Grandpa fought again on Christmas Eve. A big thank you for listening to Not About Lumberjacks. Also, a big thank you to Nils Sammons, whose writing challenge to me led to the story that kicked this all off, Not About Lumberjacks. All music by Ergo Fizmiz and Chad Crouch, also known as Poddington Bear. Visit nolumberjacks.com for information about the show, the voice talent, and music. In one month, it's the story of the last corporate worker in a post-apocalyptic world. Until next time, be mighty and keep your axes sharp.